Good morning. Good, we got some people that are awake here. This is exciting. Look at that, man. I feel like usually I do a good morning and like one person is awake here. (laughs) This is great. Man, what a privilege, man, to be in the book of Galatians. We have been treated to a feast, as uh, Mark said a few weeks ago. And uh, I hope you've appreciated the book so far. Um, I hope you've appreciated the lineup of preachers. I know I have really enjoyed um, getting Mark in here to preach, having Chris Brissett from out in the commons in LA come and preach for us. And uh, I'm just, I'm fired up to be back in the series and all and just loving uh, this book of Galatians. This letter is spiritual dynamite. It has changed lives, sparked movements of renewal and reformation in the world, and I found it to be pretty uncannily relevant to the divisions that we see in our culture right now. And so here in chapter 3 and 4, Paul is getting into the historical background behind the arguments that his critics are making. And so we're getting into the details, okay? We're getting into the, into the thick of the historical background, the biblical background, the theological background. His critics almost cer- are almost certainly basing their arguments that non-Jews need to become Jews on the institution of circumcision back in Genesis 17 and also on the importance of the law. So um, Paul has got to respond to his critics in their understanding of the Old Testament, their reading of the Old Testament. And so, so the big idea that we're looking at this morning is that Paul is going to give his Jew and Gentile readers an Old Testament history lesson to ground their new identity in Christ. So who's excited about an Old Testament history lesson today? <laughs> right. It's the Bible scholars in the room. Uh, the rest of you, hold on, hang out. There's a beautiful vision that we're coming to in this text. Uh, there, there, we're, we're surveying 2,000 years of uh, biblical history, so, you know, hang on for that. Some of you are going to be down for that. But, but the view at the end is, is, is glorious. It's going to be a long road trip we're going to be some winding through the foothills and up and up and up and up. But by the time we get to the end of our text, the, the vista is going to be magnificent. So, so hang in there if you get lost in some of the details. It's, it's going to be worth it. The view is going to be worth it. So we're going to be looking at first the promise to Abraham. We're going to go all the way back to Abraham in verses 15 through 18. We're going to look at the purpose of the law in verses 19 through 24. And we're going to look at the fulfillment of both the promise, and the law in Christ. And we're going to do that all, hopefully, in less than four hours this morning. (laughs) Oh, no, you're like, this is going to be really bad. So Paul refutes the points made by his critics by going back to the Bible. And that's something we are very much in need of doing today. Um, It would be really convenient if false teachers just like said, the Bible sucks, it's terrible, don't listen to it. You should just do what we tell you. Uh, But no, that's not usually how false teaching works, right? False teachers go in and they take the Bible and they misinterpret it, they misconstrue it, they twist it in various different ways. So we, like Paul, have to learn how to be wise and discerning students of the scriptures so that we can go in there, step in and refute errors. See, the scripture can be used, as it was used in this case, as a weapon to judge, to exclude, to condemn, uh, or it can be used to bring people together in uh, Christ. And my aim for this morning's sermon 
is that our time digging into the Old Testament history and background would bring us more deeply into our new identity in Christ, that it would actually bring us together as a body. And so let me pray that God might do that this morning, speak powerfully through his word as this uh, letter has done for so many years. And so, Father, uh, as we come this morning um, anticipating that you would speak to us, we pray uh, you would come by the power of your spirit, that you would use uh, this uh, explosive letter, uh, which has done so much, changed so many lives, um, uh, sparked so many movements of renewal in the life of the church. Would you do that here in our hearts, in our lives, as we hear these beautiful gospel truths expounded for us in classic fashion by Paul? Would you be uh, shaking up our hearts, God? Would you give us new freedom, new love because of the grace that you have for us? And we pray that you'd get all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we are uh, in our Old Testament history lesson. And I want to start, first of all, with the promise to Abraham. We've got to go all the way back to the Old Testament. Paul starts building his case for our new identity in Christ with Abraham all the way back in verse 6 here. So the arguments here in Galatians 3 are all tied together. So I'm going to be pulling some of the stuff from last week, going to be pulling some of the work in um, from this week. But Paul starts kind of with this rhetorical question here. He's like, let's go all the way back, responding to his critics, let's go all the way back to the very father of the nation of Israel, Abraham, and let's ask this question here as we're opening our debate with his critics in um, Galatia, in these Galatian churches that are saying that, Christ, that these new Gentile Christians need to become Jews. They need to follow Torah. And he asked this question, was Abraham accepted by God because he was circumcised or because of his faith? That's a, that's a great question. Was Abraham accepted by God because he was circumcised or because of faith? Faith, right? And we don't have to guess about this. We don't have to wonder because of Galatians 3, 5 through 6, right? He says these things. He says, does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So the point Paul's trying to make is that salvation is by faith. It's not by works. Abraham was counted righteous well before he was circumcised and way before, 430 years before the law even existed. So, so Paul starts his argument by going all the way back to the patriarch, all the way back to Abraham saying, salvation has always been by faith. Your acceptance with God has always been by faith. Don't let anybody smuggle in all these laws or way, other ways in which you might find acceptance by God. Don't let anyone tell you Salvation is faith plus works of law, circumcision, your dietary code, all of these other things. And then here in 15 through 18, in our text this morning, Paul returns to Abraham, but he starts with an illustration from everyday life because he knows he's getting deep into the biblical background and history. So he starts in verse 15 with an illustration, right? We all like a good illustration every now and then. The pastor gets really deep into the biblical theology. We're like, Give me an illustration from everyday life. Give me something practical. So he says, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been 
ratified. And so this human covenant is simply a will, right? We've all heard of a will. You know, you, you, if you're going to die, you know, you're getting to that point in your life, you're like, all right, I've got all these assets and resources, and I want to write up a will to let people know, particularly usually your kids, who gets the stuff, right? Who gets the house, who gets the money, who gets all that stuff. So you write up a will so that it's clear who gets what in the inheritance. And if that will is written up legally and correctly, right, you, you know where all the goods are going to. You don't have to wonder. You don't have to be in doubt. You have to wonder, am I going to be able to get those resources? It's secure, right? It is written down in the perfect legalese, and you can count on it. You can take it to the bank. That will is going to stand up over the course of time. Nobody can change it, especially not after that person dies. Nobody can go back there and rewrite the will or change the will or anything like that. Paul said, it's like that. If it's like that with a human covenant, right? if your parents write up a will and they put you in it and guarantee that you're going to get their resources and assets, you're like, sweet, man. It's, it's pretty much as good as done. But if that is true of a human covenant, human wills and testaments, how much more is that true of God's covenants, these divine covenants that he has for us? If you can count on a human will, uh, them to be able to deliver, how much more can you count on God's covenants to deliver? And the covenant that he has in mind specifically is this covenant with Abraham, right? We saw this Back in verse 8, he talked about God's promise to bless all the nations of the earth in Abraham. That's Genesis chapter 12. Here in verse 16, he highlights God's promise to bless all the nations of the earth through his offspring. And he says not just plural offsprings, but one offspring. Who is the offspring? Ultimately, it was was Jesus, right? So, So Abraham is promising blessings to all the nations of the world through Jesus. And so... That is a promise, right, that you can take to the bank, right? That is a promise that is guaranteed. That is a promise that is absolutely irrevocable. God is going to bless all the nations of the earth through Jesus. And Paul's point is that law, that the law which comes 430 years later, cannot cancel this promise to Abraham, right? It'd be easy to conclude, right, the law given 430 years later changes things, right? We could think now, all right, to get the blessing, it's now promise plus law equals blessing, right? And and that would be, you think, okay, you know, God promised all these wonderful things to Abraham, but then the law came with all its 600 and 90 regular, what is it, 630 different commandments that are in the law. And so we're going to keep the law plus the promise, then we get the blessing. But Paul argues that the law actually doesn't change the terms of the original promise given to Abraham. In fact, the law cannot undo the promise. Tim Keller says it this way, the principle is that the very concepts of promise and law are mutually exclusive. If I give you something because of what I have promised, It is not because of your performance. If I give you something because of what you have done, it is not because of my promise. Paul is adamant. Either something comes by grace or by works. Either it comes because of the giver's promise or the receiver's performance. It is either one or the other. And that's the argument in verse 18, isn't it? If you're tracking along with what Paul's saying in verse 18. But if you are... Flipping a chapter ahead... Verse 18, 
Right? For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by the promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. This makes sense to you guys? Like if I told my son Jonathan, hey, I just came into an inheritance and you know, I got all this money, I'm going to give you $1,000 to spend on whatever you want. He would be like, yes. He would probably go buy a bunch of critters and we would have our own Bartlett Zoo at our house. Um, but if I told Jonathan, if you shovel the church property and my house for the entire year, <laughs> you're going to get $1,000, right? It would be a very different kind of arrangement, right? One is a promise and then one is a arrangement based upon his performance, right? Those are two very different kinds of arrangements. What Paul is saying is that what God delivered to Abraham was a promise, and it's irrevocable. It cannot be changed. It is not contingent upon your performance, right? The promise guarantees the blessing. That is the beauty of a promise. That's what makes a promise such a good thing. And so Paul is going all the way back to the beginning of Israel's history to establish the principle that salvation is by faith in Christ with no strings attached, We are accepted by God through faith, and this offer of salvation cannot be canceled. It cannot be added to, and it must not be tampered with, right? And that news is so good, right, that we're just looking for the fine print, aren't we? We're just like, really? Can it it be that good? Like, there's no way. Like, surely God is going to become frustrated with my sin and my doubts and my struggles and my failure to make progress in the Christian life. Maybe I can, in fact, lose my salvation. Maybe God's just going to be fed up with me and just cancel me, right? We live in a cancel culture today, right? Where if you say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing, like, you could lose your job. You could lose a relationship. You could lose your community if you say the wrong things. And into this cancel culture, and we literally come, comes a promise that cannot be canceled. And I just want that to land on you this morning because Paul wants it to land with all the force of God's promise. That God's promises cannot be canceled because they're not dependent on our performance and the terms cannot be changed. And so there is some incredible freedom in that to rest in the promises of God. So if the Gentiles can receive salvation through faith in Christ apart from works of the law, apart from the law of Moses, then why did God give the law? And what's the purpose of the law? If everybody could just get the benefits without actually having to follow the law, like, gosh, why is there a law at all, right? And that's what we see here in verses 19 through 24. Paul is going to give us the purpose. He's going to expound for us the purpose of the law, starting in verse 19. Uh, the question is very clear. Why then the law? Like, what would be the point? Because obviously his critics are saying, the law is important. You've got to follow the law. It can't be as easy as just receiving the promise. The law was added, Paul says, because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise was made. And it was put in place through angels by an, interme- inter- by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary applies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith 
would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So, so what is the purpose of the law according to Paul? First, the law exposes our sin, right? Paul tells us here in verse 19, the law was added because of transgressions. In other words, it shows us how far short we fall of God's perfect law. It reveals our sinfulness, reveals our transgressions, how we've transgressed God's law. It shows us how far short we fall of God's glory, of his justice, of his good purposes for our lives. Paul unpacks this even more clearly in his letter to the Romans. Uh, I have a few verses for you on the screen. Romans 3.20, right? Through the law comes knowledge of sin. Romans 4.15, for the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Or Romans 7.7, 7, yet if I had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. The law reveals our sinfulness. It's a, it's a mirror that we look into and see the ways we fall short of God's glory. Tim Keller summarizes the law this way. He said, the law did not come to tell us about salvation, but about sin. Its main purpose is to show us our problem, that we are lawbreakers, and to prove to us that we cannot be the solution since we are unable to be perfect law keepers. Now, we don't talk a lot about the law's function of our revealing our sinfulness today. We like to talk about our best life now, right? How Jesus offers you this wonderful, well-adjusted thing. We love to give you practical life hacks and solutions for how to navigate life smoothly and your relationships comfortably and your marriage full of love and affection and your kids all to be well-behaved and wonderful. Um, But the problem is we can't have the good news without the bad news, right? We need to be reminded of who we are, the state in which we find ourselves, our own plate. The great reformer Martin Luther said it this way, and I thought this had a little bit of punch. He said, the principal point of the law is to make men not better but worse. That is to say, it showeth unto them their sin, that by the knowledge thereof they may be humbled, terrified, bruised and broken, and by this means may be driven to seek grace, and so to that blessed seed or offspring, which is Christ. And this is why Paul is so bewildered that these Galatians are going back to law-keeping. He's like, are you people crazy? Has someone bewitched you? He said back in verse 1, has someone cast a spell on you that you think you can earn God's acceptance through human effort? Um, especially since none of your ancestors ever could, none of God's people. If you read the entire history of the Old Testament, it's one story again and again of failure of God's people to live out his law, to love their neighbors, to be a light and beacon of hope for the nations around them, right? To spread the glory and the goodness of Yahweh to the nations. Instead, as we read this 2,000-year history since Abraham, It's a story of failure, of weakness, of brokenness, failure to be the people God has called them to be, this kingdom of priests to the nations. And that's why Paul's like, why would you go back to the law? Why would you think that you could do what none of your ancestors have ever been able to do, actually keep the law? So the law exposes our sin, but it does it to lead us to Christ, right? That's what Paul's point is. That's what he's driving at in this whole text. The law leads us to Christ, we see that in verse 19. Paul tells us that the law was in play until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Who's the offspring? 
Jesus, right? The offspring is Jesus. And so the law is a, it's a guardian to lead us to Christ, to, to Jesus, because Jesus was the one who fulfilled the law perfectly in our place. He is the law incarnate. The law lived out in flesh and blood. If you want to know what it looks like to love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself, right? The way Jesus summarized all, you just have to look at the life of Jesus, the person of Jesus, and you see the law in three dimension. You see the law in real life. You see the law lived out absolutely perfectly. Paul said in Romans 10, 4, that Christ is the end. He's the purpose of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. If you want righteousness, you've got to go and find it in Christ. He is the one that fulfills the law perfectly. You can't do it on your own. There's no way you can live up to God's law in your own human effort and striving. So Paul says the law is not contrary to the promise, right? And so in verse 21, he asks that follow-up question there. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given, they could give life, then righteousness would indeed by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. See, the law and the promise, they have different purposes. The law <clears throat> reveals sin, but it can't bring salvation. The law can reveal our unrighteousness, but it can't bring righteousness. In fact, Paul says it imprisons everything under sin. We were held captive under the law, or the law was our guardian, this strict disciplinarian that was there to keep us in line. And Paul's saying, how foolish would it be to, to go back to prison after being released? Like, you were imprisoned under the law, and you have this freedom in Christ. Why would you go back to prison Back to trying to keep this law to earn your acceptance, your God, your favor with God's justification. It would be utter foolishness. And, and that's why he starts chapter 3 with, you foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? It's foolishness. The law serves an important purpose to show us our sin and reveal our need for Christ. But if we are looking to it or any other law that we might create today, and we are prolific law creators, if you just look at identity politics, all the tribal groupings of today. We are, we are prolific in creating new laws, new boundary markers, new sources of division, new ways to mark our progress and give ourselves grades on who's in, who's out, who's doing well, who's doing poorly, right? That's what cancel culture is all about, not living up to the rules, not living up to the law. But if we're living on the basis of law, right, for acceptance with God and each other, we are in massive trouble, right? We can't live up to our own laws, our own standards, our own values, much less to God's perfect and holy law. So we've looked here briefly at the promise to Abraham. We've looked at the purpose of the law. Finally, we need to look at the fulfillment of the promise and the law in Christ. This is, this is where Paul's going. This is where this whole 2,000-year road trip, this journey through the promise and the law is taking us here in verse 26. I love these words. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. You see, Paul is contrasting a life lived out 
in accordance with the law, with the gift of what we have in Christ, the promise that we receive in Christ. And the first thing he highlights, in case you missed it, is that we are in Christ. Not that we could be in Christ or should be in Christ, but if we have faith, we are put in Christ. Notice these words in verse 26. In Christ you are all sons of God. Or notice in verse 27, as many as you were baptized into Christ, isn't that interesting, have put on Christ. So we're in Christ, we're into Christ, we've put on Christ. Um, Verse 28, you are all one, again, in Christ. Um, Verse 29, you are Christ's, (laughs) period. All the blessings of God flow to us in Christ. We get all of his blessings as we are united to Christ by faith. Uh, John Calvin uh, said it this way. He said, first, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value to us. Therefore, to share with us what he has received from the Father, he had to become ours and dwell within us. I have said all that he possesses is nothing until we grow into one body with him. And that is the promise of the gospel, right? That we are now united to Christ. And in Christ, we get all the blessings of God. All the promises are flowing to us through Christ, These are not hypotheticals. These are realities for us. These are things that we experience right now as children of God. And I I say children of God because that's the first blessing. That's the first benefit, isn't it? Right in verse uh, 26, right? For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. We are now God's children, and we get to bask in the freedom and goodness of being God's children. Kids, uh, I don't know how you feel about that this morning, but it's a beautiful space, man. We were hanging out um, just yesterday with, uh, with with Silas and Crin. They had their little little guy Ephraim was over there, and like it's just so cool, man. Watching kids just kind of wandering around the house, and this kid is just huge smile on his face. He's just taking life in, eating strawberries and blueberries, and just he's just living the life like the world is his oyster. I mean, he's just taking in all these new sights and sounds and experiences. He's just being a kid, but he's just taking in life and the world. That's for us as God's children, right? We stand under his smile. And of course, we're all just all, you know, loving this little dude and smiling at him and playing with him because he's a kid. And, you know, we just experience like as adults looking back on these little children in our lives. Wow, look at him grow up, look at him walk and look at him eat those things. And, And that's just God's view towards us. We're his kids, right? As we take our first faltering steps, as we go out there and explore the world, as we go play, right, we get to sit under the beauty of being his kids. We get his smile upon us. And it's not that we could be his kids or we should be his kids. It's that we are his kids. That's the reality. This is a present active verb. We are sons of God. We are daughters of God. That's who we are. That's our identity right now in Christ. And I hope that lands in you this morning, even if you feel kind of like, I don't know, I don't really, I don't really feel that. I don't really sense that right now. That, that's true of you if you are in Christ, right? If you have faith in Christ this morning, you're one of God's kids. And when he looks at you, he looks at you as parents do their, their children with that same love and affection uh, that we have for our children only times a million, right? Because he's God and his love is limitless and endless and steadfast and perfect in all the ways that our love is not. The second thing we see, not only are we children of God, 
Notice here in verse 27, the benefits just keep piling up. It just gets better and better as we go through. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That, that's pretty cool language. You've been baptized into Christ, right? If you've been through, you have faith in Christ and now have been baptized, right? Buried with Christ in baptism, risen to new life. If you've identified with Christ in baptism, which is a really powerful symbol of our union with Christ. Visualize when you go down into that pool and you know, you're know you buried beneath the waters of baptism, you rise to new life, right? We're identifying with Jesus. Our lives are taking this beautiful cruciform role. We're, we're dying and rising with Jesus. And that's who we are. Paul's saying, you've been baptized with Christ. You've been clothed with Christ. Now your new identity is Christ, right? You're clothed with him. Not that you could be like Jesus or you should be like Jesus. You have put on Christ. You've been clothed with Christ. The end goal of your life is Christ-likeness, that Christ would be formed in you, and this is who you are. You have put on Christ. If you're a Christian, if you've been buried with Christ in baptism, you've been risen in new life. You're a new creation. This is who you are. This is your identity. This is not something that hypothetically could happen to you. This is who you are in Christ, and that's powerful. But it doesn't end there, right? We get to be sons and daughters of God. We get to put on Christ in our lives, to be like little Christs for the world uh, to see we're also in a family together. I mean, notice this, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. All of you, one in Christ together. Whether you feel like it, per se, necessarily, whether you feel like this should be true, this is who you are. You are one in Christ. And notice the things that Paul goes through, right? He looks at the ethnic and racial divisions in the world, Jew and Gentile, and says, look, you're all one in Christ. He looks at the socioeconomic divisions of the world, slave and free, and says, "You're you're all one in Christ. He looks at the gender divide in the world, right, and says, you are all one in Christ. Not that you could be one in Christ or that you should be one in Christ, but because you're in Christ, you are one. This is your new identity. And it's hard to fathom just how subversive this statement was in the highly stratified culture of the first century, right? The divisions were an ironclad part of this society. But because of Paul's subversive teaching, we read today in our American culture and go, oh, duh, of course men and women are equal. And of course slaves are free. Or like slaves? Why are there slaves? <laughs> we're equal. There shouldn't be any slaves. You know, you know, black, white, all those divisions, right? In our culture today, we go, of course we're all equal because of this beautiful, powerful, subversive teaching in the gospel that has broken down previously unbreakable social divisions. And this gospel continues to do that to this very day, right? The gospel is still breaking through these divides, all the things that separate us, all the things that pull us apart, which is so relevant in the polarized and crazy world in which we find ourselves. Um, I will say it should be important to note here also that Paul's not saying race or ethnicity doesn't matter or 
socioeconomic status doesn't matter or that gender doesn't matter. Of course they do, right? They're significant, and those differences should be celebrated. There is a glory that is to be a man and a glory that there is to be a woman. And there's something glorious about different ethnicities and the different cultural products that we bring and our backgrounds and our upbringings and food and culture and clothing and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, But Paul's point is they're significant, but they can never be allowed to transcend our unity in Christ. You know, what separates us is never greater than what unites us and brings us together. And so instead of being in college or in a relationship or in a certain job or in a certain race or in a certain gender or in a certain socioeconomic class or in a certain tribe, right, our primary identity is in Christ, right? That's who We are. In Christ, we're now sons and daughters of God, part of a diverse and global family. And we can't let all the other social groupings and tribal identities define us. We have to fight for our identity in Christ. And so what would this look like practically Monday morning to live out of this new identity in Christ? If this is who we are, how should this impact how we actually live our lives uh, together. Uh, first thing I'd say is we're kids. We're God's kids. Go play. Go enjoy life as God has for us, right? We're, we're going to need to find ways to remind ourselves that we are God's children and we get to live out of the freedom that offers, right? We get to take off and just do all of the great callings that God has for us. There's a freedom in that, right? We're his kids. Go play. Go have fun. Enjoy the world that he's given, the gifts that God has given you, the callings that he's given you, the opportunities he's given you in work and college and relationships and the community. Go play. Enjoy your new status and identity in Jesus. And second, when we get hurt out on the playground of life by doing something foolish, as children often do, we don't beat ourselves up. Right? We let the law lead us to Christ. Right? We repent of our sins and turn to Jesus. Uh, Martin Luther famously said, when our Lord and Master Jesus said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance, right? Repentance should be a normal part of our lives. When we go out and do something foolish and stupid in our lives, we, we turn back to Jesus into the abundant life that he offers, into the joy that he offers to us, the pleasures forevermore that Josh pointed us to earlier uh, this morning, right? Repentance should be normal for us, right? As kids, we don't take ourselves too seriously, when we do foolish things, we hurt people. When we say something stupid, right, we repent. We, we seek reconciliation and forgiveness, and, and we, we, we rejoin the family of God together. Uh, finally, because we're in Christ, we act like it, right? We invite people different from us to go out to lunch after church, right? We have people over for pancakes on Saturday morning. We have people over for pizza Friday night and a movie night. We invite people out for coffee. We get together with people different from us. Because we are one in Christ, we act like it. We, we hang out together. We do life uh, together. Uh, part of the way we grow is by pursuing people different from us, right? We all have these tribal identities. We want to hang out with people like us, in the same phase of life with us, in the same situations, backgrounds, uh, that have the same values as us, that like the same things. But we grow as we pursue this deeper unity that we have in Christ. Uh, one last quote for you, and then seriously, I'm landing the plane. Uh, Don Carson says this. He says, ideally, the church itself is not made up of natural friends. It is made up of natural enemies. 
What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of the sort. Christians come together because they have all been loved by Jesus himself. They are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. And that is the challenge, right, for us as Christians That is the opportunity, that is the beauty of the life we're invited into. Um, We don't have to earn it. We're already in Christ. We're already invited into this life because of our union with Christ. We're already one. We just get to live into it together in a local body with local people, with the real people God has brought together into this church fellowship and into the real people that our neighbors here in the city. And my longing prayer and hope is that our church would reflect more and more of this vision that Paul has for us here, that we'd press into our identity as sons and daughters, that we'd put on Christ in the way we live and the way we walk with each other, that we would be together this beautiful, diverse, global family that the city would look at and go, what is going on there at that church, right? These divisions are being transcended that aren't being transcended anywhere else in culture. And so, That's the beautiful vision Paul has for us. And I feel like the only way we can close here is just to pray that God would do it, that God would make more of that happen in our lives as we practice it, as we walk it out, as we live it out together in community. And so, Father, we thank you for this spectacular vision, God, how in Christ, Jews and Gentiles can walk together in love, uh, that slaves and free Uh, can be together, that men and women can walk together, partner together in ministry and mission. Uh, What an incredible privilege to be a part of this kind of community. And so we pray more and more that our work would reflect, uh, that our life together would reflect more and more of this reality. Would you fill us with your spirit for it? Give us great grace as we walk it out together, uh, even this week. And I pray that you get all the glory for everything said and done in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Mike. This brings us to the table.